Uh, We are back in Genesis, as Sunni mentioned, and we are in a major turning point in this book. Uh, As a matter of fact, the most significant turning point in the book. The book itself is divided into two major sections. Uh, Chapters 1 through 11 are really about God and creation and the generations of mankind, early generations. And then chapter 12, God begins uh, through, through 50, God begins to, to focus in on one family. It's really about one man uh, and God's plan and purpose in that. Uh, if you're new to church or new to the Bible, uh, I understand Genesis um, is, can be a mystery. Um, it's the first book of the Bible and it answers some of the major questions that Christians and all human beings have, like who are we, where do we come from, why are we here, um, things like that, uh, Genesis answers. And I realize if you're, if you're checking out church or new to, new to, uh, to Christianity, like you can be like, well, I mean, and the culture kind of just destroyed all of Genesis, isn't it? completely fictitious. Um, Well, first I would say what we learned as we walked through that is that uh, it's tough to read, or you shouldn't read, a a, a document that's well over 3,000 years old uh, from a different culture through modern Western lenses. I can assure you it is not written like we would like it to be written. It's not written like I would like it to be written. I would like some more answers. I would like some more details, please. But that's not the purpose of it. It gives us, what it does is frames out a lot of things and helps us to make sense of things. And I would, I would suggest to you some of the caricatures of it through uh, in our culture of, oh, as a Christian, you have to believe this or you have to believe that. It, we, we learned through our journey through uh, chapter 1 through 11 that there are gospel-believing, Bible-believing, serious Christians throughout church history who have had various views on certain aspects of Genesis, and that's okay. So don't think, well, i got to believe in uh, seven 24-hour periods for the creation of the world, or I can't follow Jesus. That's not, that's not the point of Genesis. And so I'd encourage you to, to, um, to come into this journey with us and ask questions. Uh, as I said, Genesis 1 through 11 we, uh, is really about humanity, and uh, no sooner had God created us, right, a good uh, human beings in a good world, uh, than we managed to make a, a bid for independence, and rather than trusting God's definition of good and evil, we treated, tried to create our own definition of good and evil, and we started down this path that w- involved a lot of evil and justice and morality. And by chapter 11, what we find is human beings deciding to get together in one area and building a city and building a tower for their own glory. And this place is called Babel. Um, and it's interesting that, this, that Babel itself, we're not going to see a lot in Genesis, but through the rest of the Bible, even to the book of Revelation, Babel is a type or a picture of human beings living in rebellion to, against God. And it shows up in the term, uh, and you're probably more familiar with this if you know the Bible, Babylon. It is the same word, same root word there. And so the idea is back in Genesis 11, human beings were circled up, and God uh, had to confound them and spread them uh, through the face of the earth. And chapter 12 starts this new focus, going from high-level sort of global summary of, of human life and what was happening and how God was at work, down to now one singular family. And the rest of the book is basically just him, Abraham, uh, his son Isaac, <coughs> excuse me, his uh his son uh, Jacob and his son Joseph, in particular, in, the, in what began the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, one of the first things we need to see about this passage, though, is that, um, before we dive in and un- unpack it in some ways, is that this is about God calling. It is about God's sovereignty and God's power and God's dominion in, 
in uh, this in the world and the affairs of mankind. I realize in the rest of Genesis, you'll see, or the rest of the Bible, you'll hear Abraham held up as a model of faith. You, oh, we should have faith like Abraham, and I'm, and we should. Um, but that's not actually the point of Genesis 12. Genesis 12 uh, ha- slides all the weight behind God. God calling, God making promises. There's no, there, literally, there's nothing contingent on Abraham here at all. This is God sovereignly carrying out his will and his purpose. Um, and he didn't offer a general invitation, right? He didn't go into the land of Ur, put up a billboard, said, looking for a new, new hire, um, needs to be flexible, willing to move. Benefits are great, right? Like, he didn't offer that. He went and picked someone. And we know, uh, just from a few chapters later, he, that, that there was another character uh, alive named Melchizedek, who was a mysterious character, king of the city of Salem of peace, who somehow was a worshiper of God. And, and God could have chosen him, but he didn't. We also know, based on, on scholarship uh, and history, that there's a possibility that actually Job was alive during this time, that this was the time around Job's lifetime, and that God could have picked Job, right? And said, Job, you're going to be my man. You're righteous. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a nation through you. No, God goes into Babylon. He goes into Ur. He, he picks not a God-worshipping people, but one man that he is going to bring into his family and his purpose. God picks Abraham and begins with a command. He doesn't try to conjole, you know, invite him. He doesn't. He says, "Go." <laughs> I love that. God, only a king can speak like that, right? You and I. If I, I mean, I can't even. When my kids were little, they, oh, I don't know. Now I can't really tell them to go either. They like what? I don't have to. Um, <laughs> but when they're little, you can't even get your kids to go somewhere. But God speaks, steps into a situation. He doesn't. He doesn't offer. He doesn't invite. He doesn't encourage. He commands Abram to go. That God has a plan and a purpose for Abraham that is um, according to God's sovereign. Purpose. So we're going to look at the lens uh, through this passage, through this lens of God calling. Uh, and what's interesting is that while this is a particular moment in redemptive history, this calling is similar in many ways to the calling Jesus places on us today in following him. So let's walk through these. First, I want us to see that God calls us away from our former life. God calls us away from our former life. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. These are concentric circles, beginning with like the big parts down to the most intimate personal ones. Leave your homeland, leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your kindred, leave your father's household. God is emphasizing something here. You are going to leave it all. And if anybody in human history could have used Zillow at this point, would have been super handy, right? Abraham would have been like, can we get some pictures of that place? Uh, can we do a Zoom walkthrough maybe before I buy? Before I leave everything and everyone that I have ever known outside of my wife, right? And, and my, my, uh, my nephew, Lot, right? But that's not it. Abraham doesn't have pictures, doesn't know what the local schools are going to be like or the crime rate. But God says, Go. In fact, God, doesn't, God hasn't even told him what the land is, where the land is. It's like God looking at you and saying, head west from Boston to a land that I have for you out there. You're like, you mean like Worcester? And it's like, no, further. And you're like, 
Like, I'm guessing most of us don't know Western Mass well at all, right? <laughs> You're like, I don't know. There's probably some pretty land. There is pretty land out there. Where is it? Where am I going to be, God? Right? And then you end up in New York, which is even like upstate New York is just miles of open land. You're like, where? Where out there? Certainly Abraham was wondering that. There's no description. God doesn't even say, oh, I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Which is a reference used later in the story to describe the land that God would give them. John Calvin says, for it is better with closed eyes to follow God as our guide than by relying on our own providence to wander through those circuitous paths which it devises for us. In other words, it's better to close your eyes, (laughs) literally go, okay, God, just lead me wherever than it is to go, oh, I see it. I will make a plan. I will work the plan, right? Over the last uh, five years, just over 40 million Americans move each year, around 13% of the population. It dipped a little bit during uh, 2020 uh, or, or went up in some ways during 2020 and then down during 2021, but around 13% moved, some for housing reasons, some for family-related reasons, some for job reasons. But I couldn't find what percentage of people moved because God told them to go to a place that he had not showed them yet. And they just sold their house or ended their lease and just packed up and moved. It's not a common path, right? Not a common thing to do. And yet God did this. He had to leave uh, the land, the land, the people, um, his family, and even his family's deities. One of the things that we don't uh, if, you, if you knew this culture, you understood ancient uh, Jewish culture, ancient uh, Near Eastern culture, you would know that anywhere you lived, there were deities associated with the land and the people. And God says, leave the land, leave your people, and follow me to a land I will give to you. He's basically saying, stop worshiping the gods you're worshiping. Stop obeying them, stop listening to them, stop offering to them, follow me. Abraham had to decide whether to abandon all of, all of what he had known in favor of the, what the Lord had to offer him. This is crazy because <clears throat> while he was abandoning his family uh, and God had said, I will make you a great nation, it, it also just inserts right in there that Sarah was infertile. So he had no kids. His name, Abram, means exalted father. And Abram's not even a father. And yet God's, and he's older, right? And God's like, I'm going to bless you. The Lord's cost, the call came with a cost and it was significant. Same as God's call for you and I today. When God calls, he calls sovereignly. He doesn't invite you to negotiate. He doesn't invite you to enter into conditions of your agreement to follow him. God, I'll follow you as long as I can still have this and do these things and go with these people and whatever. No. It is leave it all, leave your land. You have to be willing. And in some places in this world today, at this very moment, people are sacrificing family that they have known their whole lives in order to follow Jesus. And that is the call for you and I today. This is why Jesus, um, in one of his more unpopular teachings, (laughs) in Luke 14, 25, he says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any of one, one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
That's hard, right? Now, and I hope you see this hyperbole here. Jesus doesn't, husbands, he doesn't want you to hate your wives and hate your children and your moms. And, you know, like he's saying, in terms of relation to me, there is no rivalry. There is no rivalry with your kids. There's no rivalry with your spouse. There's no rivalry with your parents. It is me above all. And if, you, if there is a rivalry, then you can't be my disciple. If you constantly value your kids or your spouse or your parents more than you value me, then you cannot be my disciple. Some of you in this room, it's cost you relationship with your parents because you've decided to follow Jesus and you're living your life in certain ways that, are, that you can't fully honor your parents the way they want you to, right? There is a cost And that's why in between these verses, between verses 27 and 33, Jesus literally says, you've got to count the cost. Abram, the the one thing it doesn't really tell us, because the emphasis, again, in this passage is not on Abram and what he did. But he went. We know God said, go, I'm going to bless you. And he went. Between those two things, Abram did some thinking, right? We kind of know that. He, He had to consider giving up everything he had known, literally, to go to follow God. The problem with some of us here today is that we're hanging on to things from our former life. We're hanging on to these, and I preached a little bit about this last week, some of the worldly passions and and desires that we once had. How do you recognize these things in your life? Well, this is a really convicting question. Lord gave me, so I've got to ask you as well. What would I be doing or valuing in the exact same way if I wasn't a Christian? What would I be doing or valuing in the exact same way today if you were not a follower of Jesus? That's the thing that you have to give up. Whether it's thinking of yourself, valuing yourself, pursuing your own dreams, hanging on to whatever. That thing is handicapping your walk with Jesus if you're a Christian. It is like you have not just tied one arm behind your back, but you have tied one leg to a weight. And you are trying to run uh, the Christian life while dragging this weight behind you. Like, I can do it. I can have it all. I can follow Jesus and have this thing. And... And God says in Hebrews 12, cast it off, get rid of it. It is the thing that is holding you down. And I've been reading and studying a lot on spiritual warfare over the last year, year and a half. And I would say this, this is leaving your flank open to Satan who wants to steal, kill and destroy. It's like going into battle and leaving your, your, your flank open to an enemy who is merciless, who hates you and wants to destroy you. To take away the battle image, it's like having a home and finding out that there is a psychopathic serial killer loose in your neighborhood, and you just happen to leave your back door unlocked every night. You are doing that with that thing in your life. So I'd ask you, what is it that God is calling you to lay down so that you can follow him more fully this year? His calling is for nothing less than all of you. Secondly, we see that God calls us to a new home and a family, a new home and family. We'll look at Abram's faith again and what it means, but the emphasis here, I love this, and it's, and it's on purpose in the writing, is the weight is on God's promises, not on Abraham's faith. 
It's not on how amazing Abraham's faith is. He doesn't even speak in this passage. The weight is all on God. Look at verses two and three. God says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises seven blessings here. The first one, I will make you a great nation. Not just I'll make you have a large clan of people, I'll have you a large group of people. No, he says, I'm literally going to create a geopolitical organization with its own land from you. This is a guy with no kids, remember? And yet he's being promised this crazy promise to be not just a nation, but a great nation. Secondly, I will bless you. This envisions both spiritual and physical blessings. This is um, not the exact blessings that you and I get offered, but every blessing that you and I have as followers of Jesus come from this blessing that God gave to Abraham. All the blessings you and I enjoy flow through Abraham's blessing. When God, uh, to, to give you a little definition, when God blesses someone in the Old Testament, he puts that person under his care and protection and in his favor. In particular, we see it in prosperity, fertility, and victory. We see in Abram's family, not everyone gets these. Not everyone gets these uh, promises, but they, they are expressed in his line. He gets all of them, but his line gets, uh, expresses them all in various ways. Not every individual, but every, uh, his line as a whole is marked by these things. The third blessing, I will make your name great. This means that you'll be great in numbers and your name will be known. When we talk about fame, we're reading about a guy thousands and thousands of years old today, right? On the other side of the world, who lived a very simple life, didn't write any books, didn't have a blog or a podcast, no YouTube channel, and yet he is known throughout history. Three world religions root have roots in Abraham. I think, God got, I think God answered this very clearly, right? That God made his name great. What's interesting here is there's a contrast with Babel, though. Back in chapter 11, the people settled in a land and wanted to make a name great for themselves. God says, I'm going to give you a land and I will make your name great. So you can either... Seek to make your own name great, or you can have God make your name great. Fourth blessing, so that you will be a blessing. This is a a, a purpose clause here, so that you will be a blessing. It's a promise that your name, Abram, will be synonymous with blessing. People uh, who um, know him will think blessing and will be blessed by him. This is the ultimate significance of Jesus, right? That, that, that Abram's, uh, Abram in himself, his line will be a blessing. The book of Matthew in the New Testament, if you're reading through the New Testament this year, you started in Matthew, right? You're reading the, always the boring part at the very beginning is the genealogy of Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, but what does it begin with? Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. The blessing, right? Number five, I will bless those who bless you. Abraham's blessing on others meant God blessed them. It's powerful. 
Six, him who dishonors you, I will curse. No one will get away with mistreating Abraham. Remember from Genesis back in in chapter 3, we've seen the outworking of blessing and cursing, right? And finally here, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a progression of blessing. First, Abraham would be blessed, and then all the families of the earth, not just his nation, not just the Jewish people, but all peoples on earth would be blessed because of him. This is like a snowball, right? You, you make a little snowball and you're on a hill as a little kid. Uh, maybe you did this. Maybe as an adult you've tried it. Um, you take that snowball and then uh, you start. We're not doing it this year right now, evidently. But um, <laughs> you take that snowball and you start it down the hill. And what happens is it gets going. It really happens. It's not just in cartoons when you're a kid. It literally builds up into a larger snowball. If you've got enough momentum and enough snow and the snow is the right kind of snow, it will pile up. This is a like God's snowball blessing on Abraham. And this is, a, this is a calling for you and I, that God promises us a, a new home with him, a new family with him. It's all contingent on him. I love this. Again, reminding us that we don't follow a God that, as Christians, that, that wants us to meet him halfway. He's not like, hey, Abraham, if you'll do these things, if you'll do these things, and you'll keep this, and you'll try that, I will bless you. What does he say? Go, and I will bless you. That's it. That's all God commands Abraham. And for you and I, when we are called to come to Christ and we lay down our sin, we, lay, we repent and we turn away, we come to him, he gives us a new home. He gives us a new family, right? And it's contingent on him. We don't make our new family. God does. We don't make a new home. He's made it. He's invited us into it. Story after story around this church, you could talk about ways that you have found a new home and a new family in Christ. Even our baptism testimonies over the last few months have been about how God calls, as Jesus calls us in, he calls us and gives us a new family, a new home and new family. Finally here, God calls us into his kingdom and purpose. His kingdom and purpose. Adam had failed on his own, right? But now, God's uh, promises and purposes were at work. And they weren't contingent on Abraham's ability to deliver, but on God who makes and keeps his covenant promises. God was doing something. We have the benefit of looking back through history at this moment, but God was doing way more than Abram could even remotely comprehend, right? Like, Like, it's staggering, that out of Abram, God would begin the greatest, most diverse movement of humanity the world has ever seen. In this moment, God was at work for his purpose and his, uh, for his kingdom. And he's inviting Abram into this. And he says, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, he's, he'd gotten him into Canaan, and he says, To your offspring I will give this land. Abram at this point had no army. He didn't have a lot of wealth, didn't have a lot of resources. He didn't have the ability to to conquer the land, take the land, claim the land. His wife, Sarah, was barren. Up to this point, right, you remember if you've been around in Genesis, we come across these genealogies, and you'll hear uh, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, who is the father of so-and-so, who is the father of so-and-so. And now we have Abraham, exalted father, who is father of none. Because Sarah, his wife, was infertile. 
And I want to briefly just excursus on that for our community here. In this room, there are those of you who struggle with infertility. And I want to, I want to encourage you today. God sees you. And secondly, while Abraham's blessing was based on biological children, Jesus' blessing is not. The New Testament church does not grow through babies. It grows through rebirth. Rebirth, born again, believers. And so God sees you. Abraham was not father of anyone at this point, though. But God was going to build a kingdom, and he was carrying out his purpose. And going back to verse 3 in the last blessing, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made crazy promises to Abraham. Laying the groundwork for his son to come. That people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth would come to worship Jesus and to walk with God and know God. There's so much. We're going to hear this repeated over and over again. Galatians, or, uh, Genesis 12, Genesis uh, 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. God repeats this. He gives a little more detail. He fills out the covenant more detail. We hear, and, there, and I think the reason he repeats it over and over again and then repeats it to Isaac as well is that God is wanting to make sure that he gets this, right? It, that, that he understands what he's doing, that, that Abraham understands what God is doing in and through him. And then in the New Testament, Abraham, more than, more than maybe any character through all of Scripture, Abraham is held up, uh, and, and in particular for his faith. But in relation to faith, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, <clears throat> Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What God was doing in Genesis 12 was going into the heart of Babylon, the enemy's territory, where he was ruling and reigning and people were doing whatever they wanted to do. And God said, I'm going to take one man for my kingdom and my purpose, and I'm going to change the world through it. I love this. This is a God who has a plan and a purpose in this world. And if you're not a Christian or you're new to church or you're just reconnecting with church, I want to I encourage you. Our secular culture would make you believe no one believes in God, but the vast majority of people still, all of them even recent surveys, still show that people believe in God, a supernatural God being of some kind. It's not the God of Abraham. The God of our culture is this. God is there to get in on your purpose and your kingdom. He is subservient to you. He is here to be a part of you building your story. And I just want to say something, just pause on that. In all honesty, does anybody really, really want that? Like, do you think, my gosh, the greatest thing God of the universe, creator of everything could do is get me in as the center of it all? Or perhaps it is we as human beings that are meant to be caught up in a bigger kingdom and purpose in this world. That's a whole lot more meaningful than my kingdom. My kingdom can be taken. My kingdom can be destroyed. My kingdom can be upset when it has a bad day. But God's kingdom and God's purpose does not. In my life, in my purpose, Christ invites us into that. Into his purpose. 
Matthew 13, 44, I love this just brief, it's the shortest parable Jesus ever gave. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. This is Abram, right? Oh, I have found, God has said, I will bless you. I'll make a great nation of you. Okay, bye. Love you guys. Take care. See you later. See everything I've ever known. See all the land I've ever been, all the promises, all the gods I've ever worshiped. Take care. I found a field. (laughs) That's the kingdom. And even today in our city, there are people discovering this kingdom. And I love this, the the response as you follow in in chapter 12, the response Abraham has as he leaves, right? Is, and you saw this, he stops on his way and he builds an altar and worships God. And then he goes on a little further and he stops and he builds an altar and worships God. Why? Because worship is the natural activity of the human heart. And when you find something to worship, you will worship it. Worship is the natural response to God's calling in your life. Worship is the thing that keeps your heart oriented to the reality you are seeking to live out. You gotta worship. I would challenge you this this year that you gotta worship, not just on Sundays, you gotta worship. You gotta get your heart in a place. You need to be like Abraham. And and it's really interesting. There's lots of theories about why Abraham like stopped and built these altars and what was he sacrificing? What happened? Were these special places? But the most simple response, the most simple uh, explanation is the most helpful. He just wanted to stop and worship God as he was going. He needed to stop and praise his God and, 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 and this God, he hadn't even gotten to the land yet. <laughs> he had, his wife was not carrying a baby yet. <clears throat> but he was so caught up with this calling of God that he had to stop. I have to tell you, there are so many times through the week that I have to stop and worship. There are times I have to stop. I, my mind, my heart, I get caught up in my kingdom, my plan, my purpose isn't going the way it should. And my heart needs to be reoriented to the God who's called me into his kingdom and his purpose. Abram worshiped because God had called him and blessed him. Do you worship because of that? As I close, I'm gonna ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes Um, and if you feel comfortable you can kind of open your hands and place them on your lap in front of you I want that to just be a physical symbol of the answer to this question that I want you to ask God what are you calling me to do to give up in response to what you have promised and given me. Take a few moments and just settle that. Let the Spirit speak to you and give that thing up to the Lord.
move into our time of response now through singing, through communion. If you're a Christian, God has made extravagant, crazy promises to you through his son, Jesus. He has sent him to die on the cross that you might be blessed, truly blessed. And he invites you not to come live in a land, but to come live with him, to know him, to enjoy him, to be blessed by him and and knowing him all of your days of your life. He wants to give you a kingdom and a purpose. And he's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And he gave us this meal. Jesus gave us this meal, this bread and this cup to remind us of what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do. In some ways, we're very much like Abraham on the journey to the promised land. We're following, but we're not there yet. We haven't fully got, we haven't got our inheritance fully. But we can see it. It's been promised by the one who's called us and sent his son for us. So as, you, as a Christian, take these few moments of this next song as you need to. Um, and then uh, step out, go and take the bread and the cup. Jesus didn't take Jesus didn't give his body and blood reluctantly for you. He gave it, uh, Hebrews says, out of joy set before him. He endured the cross. So take enjoy today knowing it is his joy to redeem you. If you're not a Christian and you're not sure where you stand today, we, we're, we're grateful you're here. It's a huge step for you to come gather with Christians today. This is the one part of the service for those who have taken that step of faith. Um, during this next song, uh, Believers will be stepping forward towards the front, making their way out the side and out the back to take communion outside because we're not can't have food or drinking here. And if you want to walk, just step and walk with the people with you. You're welcome to do that and just come around, make your way back in, or you can stay where you are. Uh, but I'm going to encourage us all to just take this time over this next song. Let the Spirit speak to us, challenge us, root that thing out of our hand that we need to let go. Let's go ahead and stand together. Jesus, thank you for for the call, but not just for the call, but for doing everything necessary for us to obey you, to follow you, to know you. You are our promised land. It's not some future ideal that will simply be way out there, but today, in this very moment, you are eternal life. You are our home. You are our purpose and our future, all wrapped in pray you'd be real to each of us even now through your spirit. In your name we pray.